0: Emma Walton Hamilton is a best-selling children's book author, editor, producer, actor, voiceover artist, public speaker, and arts educator. She has co-authored over 30 children's books with her mother, Julie Andrews, seven of which have been on the New York Times bestseller list, including the Very Fairy Princess series. She also wrote her own award-winning book for parents and caregivers, Raising Bookworms, getting kids ready for pleasure and empowerment. Emma's most recent project is Julie's Green Room, a children's television program about the arts created for Netflix, starring Julie Andrews, and co-produced by the Jim Henson Company. Since 2008, Emma has been a faculty member for Stony Brook Southampton's MFA in Creative Writing and Literature program, where she teaches children's literature. She lives in Sag Harbor, New York, with her husband and their two children.
1: a little bit all over the map. So I started out uh, thinking that I wanted to pursue acting, and I did that for a while uh, in theater primarily, and also a little bit in film and television. And from there, uh, I moved into directing and producing for theater. And um, soon after that, started to, uh, with my husband, Steve Hamilton, we uh, co-founded the Bay Street Theater in Sag Harbor which I ran as the co-artistic director with Sybil Christopher for 17 years. And during that time, when I was at the theater, um, I was working not only as a director and a producer, but also teaching and running the educational programs in area schools. Mm -hmm. And also dramaturgy with uh, the playwrights that we would develop some of our new plays with. I worked very closely on a number of the new plays that we developed to bring them to production-ready status. And in that work, and also in my teaching of playwriting to area high school and middle school students, um, I began to see the parallels between dramatic writing for the stage and uh, of writing of narrative fiction. And when I had my own children, uh, I became extremely interested in writing for children. And also, uh, since I was teaching children as well, um, that's when my approach to uh, writing for children began to to take off, and I collaborated with my mother, who had written. We
2: should say at this point, it is is Julie Andrews. Yes,
1: my mother is Julie Andrews, the actress, and uh, she had written two middle grade novels in the '70s when I was a child, and they had been fairly successful. And uh, she had been asked by her publisher if she would consider writing for younger readers, if she would consider a picture book. And that was a new form for her, but I happened to have a, a child of age, of picture book age, at home. and uh,
2: Valuable research.
1: Yes, exactly. One thing led to another, and uh, she asked me what my, my son was missing in his library. And at the time, uh, he was completely and utterly obsessed with trucks, as many little boys often are. And I was having trouble finding, uh, he, he literally wanted to eat, sleep, and breathe trucks. He, he would only sleep on seats that had trucks on them and wear t-shirts with trucks on them and of course wanted you know the same truck stories night after night. So I wanted to find something that uh, had a little bit more value in terms of character and theme and sure. something that would provide a little bit more than just the bulldozer goes crunch kind of thing mm. um, in the evenings for him. and, and I was having trouble. My mother said, well, let's try and write it together, and here we are now, over thirty books later, and this has become my primary focus, and now I teach writing, and uh, theatre is more or less a thing of the past for me, and I'm hundred percent focused now on writing and teaching writing.
2: And speaking about young adult. keeping you in the family, I believe it was your father who illustrated a number of those books as well? He
1: did, yes. Yeah. Initially, he illustrated, well, we have now um, several different series, the yes. picture book series is under our belt. So that first series was called Dumpy the Dump Truck, and my father did illustrate it. And then he also illustrated a middle grade novel that we wrote about the theater called The Great American Massacre. Right. So he, he actually did illustrate two of our uh, projects, but
2: not all of them. Yes, and why don't you speak about those other projects, the Princess projects, and you know, what led you, and then you've done anthologies, which you also, you won a Grammy for. Um, providing the voice I that's believe. right Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: well the, the princess books the very fairy princess series was very much inspired by my daughter um, uh, growing up my daughter was uh, she had some physical challenges but she was completely um, confident in her in her beauty in her um, authenticity of, of personality and in herself and uh, she would only ever wear pink and purple and dresses, and she was a different character every day, and she would, you know, one day a princess, another day a fairy, and she became the inspiration for us for this character in our series, uh, The Very Fairy Princess, which we really wanted to write a a series, having written this, you know, dump truck series, which was very boy-centric, we wanted to write something that was empowering for, for girls, and not just pretty princesses, but um, but girls, you know, celebrating their individuality and their authenticity, even in the face of challenges, and that's really the heart behind that series.
2: So that's lovely that your two series are based or inspired by your two children, Sam and Hope. I guess.
1: Yes, that's right.
2: Um, it's Both so lovely parents. when you have the inspiration to write for someone a muse like that that it's um, it gives it makes everything more personal.
1: It does. It does, and and then of course, you know, working with children as I do, it, it um, it's a it's a wonderful. I feel like I have you know a large family of children I write for, mm-hmm. and um, you know, but Sam and Hope w- always uh, were my original inspiration and my first readers and my toughest critics, mm-hmm. <laughs> as you might imagine.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and you know, still very. I mean, they're both grown now. Sam has graduated from college.
2: And Hope's mm-hmm. in high
1: school but uh, still very much, you know, a source of inspiration
2: for me. And so now you've worked with area high schools around Sag Harbor, that's currently where I'm doing a residency and collaborating with with the Guildhall and um, yes. Eric Fishel and April Gornay, and the community's been lovely. It must be a lovely um, a community to raise children as well, because I see how engaged everyone is. It, just... it is,
1: it's a wonderful place to raise children. I'm, we're so blessed to be here. We've been here for 27 years now, and uh, it's really—I can't imagine being anywhere else, or raising a family anywhere else. And—and mm. um, and yes, I mean through my, because now I'm uh, for the last 10 years I've been a faculty member at Stony Brook Southampton, yes. where I teach uh, writing for children and young adults, and I run a uh, graduate-level certificate program for writing for children. Um, but I also helm a, pro- a program there call- called the Young American Writers Project, or the acronym is YAWP, mm-hmm. and uh, what we do is we send teaching artists out into our area, high schools and middle schools, and we teach young people um, the basics of dramatic writing through playwriting courses, screenwriting courses, fiction, poetry, essay, and so forth, and uh, it's, that's... Um, I ran a similar program at Bay Street in the years that I was there, mm. and both of those programs uh, have been just a wonderful window for me in, into the uh, school districts out here. We have its a small area, this little east end of Long Island, but we have many, many different school districts, m- most of which are only you know five or ten minutes away from one another, but each of which is completely unique mm. and has its own culture and its own needs and its own voice. And uh, so it's been very, very interesting working with the different communities and the different children
2: mm. in these districts. Oh, and you have a fantastic writing program there. I'm I'm interviewing Susan and Merrill later today, and um, hopefully we'll to showcase more of the, the fantastic writers you have across the disciplines.
1: Yes, it um, is. It's a phenomenal program. There yeah. it really
2: is, and the history, of course, of uh, uh, you know the the, the literary artists in Sag Harbor and in the Southampton. Um, it's it's fantastic, and. It's, it seems like the life that you've lived is really echoed in the Julie, Julie's Green Room, the, the character that you are. Very
1: much so, Yeah. <laughs> you
2: are the real-life Julie, um, the, the, the drama teacher, the arts teacher.
1: Yes, in many ways that's true. Um, so, Julie's Green Room is a, is a children's television series that my mother and I wrote uh, and produced for uh, Netflix. And uh, and it's, you know, my mother plays this character of Julie, who runs a small regional theater, very much like Bay Street, and offers programs for children there, and uh, arts, arts-based programs for children. And so, yes, I mean, when we were doing uh, publicity and promotion for the series when it was first coming out, I, I found myself saying, well, yes, my life has very much been, um, and been that of Julie in Julie's Green Room. And we drew on that, of course, you know, m- many of... The experiences we had at Bay Street, and that I continue to have working with children, we drew on for the series.
2: Mm. And what I think is lovely about that is it doesn't focus on just one aspect of the arts, because both you and Julie Andrews have been very strong advocates for the arts across disciplines and have experience of many disciplines. So it's anything from you know dance to music to you know different kinds of writing um, that's so um, inclusive. The That's right. Arts.
1: Well, we both we both uh, firmly believe that um, you know there's a place for everybody in the arts, and just you know you maybe you're interested in performing, but maybe not. Maybe actually, what's more interesting is the technical side of of theater, or maybe you're just you know a very appreciative audience member, or mm-hmm. maybe you're a writer or a director, and so we wanted. Our what we call our greenies, which mm-hmm. are the little children. Fantastic in fantastic puppets.
2: The, yeah. the Jim Henson um, also collaborate. Uh, the Jim That's Henson right. Company. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The Jim Henson Company created these original puppets for us for the series, and they played the children. And uh, we wanted them to be a very diverse group that a, a real cross section that uh, represented, you know, children from all walks of life, all cultural. Uh, backgrounds, all ethnicities, all socioeconomic backgrounds. Every every ast- we wanted every child to, who watched the show to see themselves represented somewhere there, and yeah. and of course to find some aspect of the arts that might speak to them. And so that was very much a focus for
2: us. Yeah, and it's it's such an important message now, as as I see. I don't like to bring politics into it too much, but there's so much divisiveness and and you know people you know not seeing eye to eye not communicating that i think that you know that's what the arts are really there for is to, to help us communicate understand and empathize
1: absolutely um, and to uh, to understand really to understand ourselves and well, find yeah. compassion for one another yeah. through that understanding yes i couldn't agree more
2: yeah i mean it, it so it makes me sad when i hear about I mean, I, I, love, I love that there, are these, you know, there's dedicated individuals like yourself and Julie Andrews and just individual artists who are stepping up with there's you know, the lack of funding and support for the arts. I don't. Um, there's a beautiful um, quote, I believe. I don't know is it the the foundation that you work with a few different foundations or a few different organizations. But there was a quote that you and Julie Andrews mentioned of Catherine Ann Porter. Could you remind me what that is? But it's so beautiful. Yes,
1: absolutely. Um, that's a quote that actually in the years that I w- was at Bay Street, we used, um, we we had it published on our ticket envelopes because we oh. so believed in it. And uh, my mother and I reference it often. Mm-hmm. And Catherine Ann Porter, essentially um, what she says is that the arts are, uh, are what we find when the rubble is cleared away. In other words, they are, they are the sum and substance of our lives, and we can go through wars and changes and, and you know, all kinds of, of challenges in the world, but in the end, the arts tell us who we are, and they are what remain yeah. no matter what, and mm-hmm. you know when we look back and understand other civilizations that went before us, and when we think ahead to how people will view us in future civilizations, it will be our art mm-hmm. and the arts that inform, um, you know, th- that story and tell people who we are and who we were, just as they do now from history.
2: Mm, it's it's so true, and uh, that it's it's a beautiful and important message. Yes, and. So, are you are you are you are you working on on other um, books, anthologies, uh, programs? Is Judy's Green Room uh, go into um, or is that is that a, was it a finished series? I don't know. The
1: yeah, that was that was uh, designed as a as a complete
2: mm-hmm. series,
1: thirteen episodes telling one narrative through line. We're certainly open to further um, seasons, but at the moment, that's that's not mm-hmm. in the works. What we're focusing on right now. Um, f- and have been for the last two years, I'm uh, co-collaborating with my mother on her second installment of her memoir. Oh. how wonderful! So, uh, yes, yeah, she, uh, she wrote, I, I helped her to write the first Thank memoir, which was published 10 years ago, and that represented the first roughly 30 years of her life, mostly her childhood as a performer in vaudeville mm-hmm. and then coming to New York and, and performing on Broadway. This particular book deals with the uh, what she views as the second chapter of her life, which is the Hollywood years. Mm-hmm. And um, so we are uh, one of the reasons um, I'm so busy at the moment is that mm-hmm. we are on a on a tight deadline to, um, to finish that project. Yeah. And then uh, we are I'm also obviously still teaching and and writing and working with Stony Brook, but we are also developing uh, a podcast.
0: Oh right. for, uh,
1: yeah, about children's literature and literacy uh, for family audience. So that's that's in development as we speak.
2: Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, that is so important because that's how we first receive stories is usually orally, and uh, so keeping that alive through podcasts is is lovely. Yeah, uh, that's the right. spoken word. Uh, and I'm so—I mean, I'm—I'm I'm a bit of a fan too. The first movie I saw was *Mary Poppins*. Oh, really? <laughs> and I so it's very much—I mean, I'm sure you must have—you know—met a lot of fans, but you know, it's very strong in my early memory of what. Oh, I think I was a bit annoying. I wanted my mama to be a bit like Julie Andrews. Uh. She, she was the Auntie julie Andrews. Didn't know how to cook. Didn't know how to sing. <laughs> well, no, can sing, but can't do any practical things.
1: Oh dear. <laughs> well, but um, of course that was a character. She played. You know, <laughs> no, she wasn't it wasn't true. <laughs> <good>. It
2: wasn't <laughs> true. Because to me, it was like it was like an ideal of uh, you know just I I think it's the warmth. It's not so much you know all the yes. domestic things, but it's just this this this, this presence and this love. Um, well, and that's very, very that
1: is very true to who she is. I'm happy to say she is uh, every bit as lovely a person as you might imagine. So.
2: Yeah, and how is it like to you know to collaborate on her memoir, to be you know to interview her about those things? You must discover things that you didn't know. And
1: yes, it's very moving. I have to say, it's um, I, I I've always we've always had a very warm and open relationship, so it isn't so much that I'm learning any great secrets that I didn't mm. know about her, but I must say that the process. Um, of sort of peeling away the layers of the emotional onion, so to speak, and telling a life story really does um, give you a window into someone's soul and someone's life journey. And for me, it's it's a very moving experience to see, you know, how she navigated these periods in her life and and these opportunities and these challenges. And you know, uh, she obviously she was enormously fortunate, and she had. Tremendous very early on, but she also uh, dealt with tremendous challenges. She, you know, she grew up during the, the Second World War, and she was uh, she had very little education because uh, she was both taken out of school because of the war, and also because she was uh, working from the age of 12 onwards to help oh, yeah. support her family. And you know, uh, the, as a result. Um, Life and I think what I've come to appreciate most working with her is, is uh, her resilience. You know how I she really has managed it. to maintain this incredible optimism, mm-hmm. even even in later life. You know dealing with such challenges as losing her voice. Um, you know she's reinvented herself time and time again, and that's a real source of inspiration and, and a privilege and an honor to um, to help bring that story to life.
0: Hi, my name is Dan O'Nisson. I'm a recent graduate from UC Berkeley with a degree in English and a minor in political economy. And not too long ago, I wrapped up an internship with Variety reporting on entertainment news. I owe much of who I am today to my childhood reading. I remember well reading specific books in specific locations. A series of unfortunate events by the tetherball corps in my elementary school. Huckleberry Finn at the local Barnes & Noble, which has since been shuttered. Slaughterhouse Five, after finishing throwing a pot in my ninth grade ceramics class. These are important plot points in my life. I would not think the way I do now if not for those books. Nor would I have the same capacity to read more and more now as I get older. Nor would I have my abounding curiosity. It's exciting to listen to Emma talk about instilling a passion that she and I share in younger kids with her dedication and expertise. She understands how much of a determinant childhood reading is of future success. When I hear people like Emma, I'm encouraged to continue my work with children, which is something I enjoy just as much as reading. I've worked as a mentor at an elementary school as well as a camp counselor. I'm constantly impressed by how much young kids know about Greek gods from reading the Percy Jackson series or how they identify themselves via Harry Potter sorting houses. But we live in distracting times. Kids are bombarded with easily accessible phone apps, YouTube, etc. I one time saw a toddler holding a magazine, swiping on photos as if it were an iPad image. People like Emma are on the vanguard of keeping reading alive for kids. By competing with these high-tech toys, by making the reading alternative even more entertaining. As a child educator myself, I take my cue for Miss Walton Hamilton.
2: Well, how empowering and how how interesting for, you know, young women or, or people of, of all ages, you know, to, to hear that story.
1: Yes, I mean, I really, I have to say, I wish, um, I I wish I could clone myself first Mm -hmm. of all, because I would so love to be able to do this same process with my father, who has had an equally interesting life, and um, you know, I would love to be able to tell his story. There are only so many hours in the day, alas, Um, Mm
2: -hmm. but
1: I wish that every adult child could have the opportunity to have this experience with a parent and. And, sh- and listen to their stories and record them and help bring them at least to the rest of the family, if not to the world, because it, it is such a, an amazing process and it helps, it has, it has helped me, uh, you know, understand her, appreciate my own life and also, you know, the way in which I look at my, ch- my own children um, and the tremendous quantum leap that's you know that was made from my mother's childhood to mine, and then now to my own children. It's, it's quite a story if you think about it, and I wish that everybody could have that experience of kind of seeing their own life in relationship to their parents and their grandparents and their children.
2: I think you're so right. I've done it with my grandmother now, but I I regret that I didn't have a chance to do it with my grandfather, who was older. And you just to have that and something that you can go back to. And also, it's, it's, it's so true, because we just, we meet our parents and we know them as mom or dad, but we don't know what went before, you That's know? Right. That's right.
1: That's I, right. I mean, I find it's fascinating, because in the first book that we did together, that we collaborated on, um, I wasn't born at the time of those stories, and so uh, that book ends with my birth. And so, of course, you know, I'm, I was really just interpreting her experiences and her experiences, with this book begins when I'm a, an infant mm-hmm. and a- over the course of three decades of course I'm there experiencing everything with her and it's fascinating now to me to, although I'm, I'm familiar obviously with all the events that happened um, you know my perspective when I was a child was that she was an adult and she absolutely was in control and knew what she was doing and making conscious decisions and choices and so forth, and what I, of course, know now is that she was a young woman who was often felt confused or frightened or unprepared or, you know, any of the things that we all feel in our journeys mm-hmm. to adulthood, and uh, it's, you know, it's very interesting to suddenly see your, your parents as vulnerable human beings on a life journey just as we are.
2: Yeah, it's, it's so beautiful. And so, so you've also written books for adults, raising bookworms, but primarily what you you know you've written, and then the memoirs you worked done. Um, yeah. So is there? Are you moving towards more uh, books or YA more YA novels, or what is your? Not so
1: much YA. I think that um, we have written we've written middle grade novels mm-hmm. together, yeah. um, a couple of middle grade novels, and one is a, a history. Um, uh, historical fiction, and as I mentioned, the book about the Broadway theater, mm-hmm. the mice in the theater. Yeah. Um, YA has never really been a, it's always, I love to read YA, but it's yeah. not been a strength of my writing. Um, right. Most of my, most of my... It's difficult
2: uh, enough to, to do that, I imagine. It is, yeah.
1: yeah it is a very, it's interesting, that's one of the things that's so interesting about children's literature, yeah. is that each format, whether you write picture book or Middle grade or young adult. Each format is very specific to itself and requires a different skill set. Um, You know, it isn't. They don't necessarily overlap the the skills of writing for one genre over another. Um, And so, most of my adult writing has been uh, Mm nonfiction, in memoir, and also this book, *Raising Bookworms*, which is more of a um, sort of an education. a book about keeping, about literacy it's a book about getting children reading and uh, celebrating literacy and keeping children reading in the digital age and um, you know the the value of that and how to preserve that mm-hmm. for young
2: people I think it's so important for critical thinking too now when everything is so immediate I, well, I try to we try to, um, we try to empower that and try to encourage that but it's there's so many distracting mediums and I feel that it, I mean it's been observed the loss of attention span or the loss of definitely yeah, yeah. and
1: the, the core, you know the direct relationship between children who do read and not just read for school but read for pleasure. Yeah. and uh, you know the other measures of success in later life are, has been demonstrated over and over again. and um, mm. you know there there's this, some pretty astonishing statistics out there even extending to the degree to which uh, we are Involved in, in philanthropy, or yes. we vote, or we engage in civic responsibilities, you know, can be directly um, correlated to how much we read. It's, I, it's you know. really one of the single most important things we can do, I think.
2: Well, it's teaching well, the way books are designed, they're like blueprints, you know, they're like things you, you, know, you can use them to help you think critically. I think, That's right. Things. I like, I think yeah. of them
1: as toolboxes, in yeah. a sense, you know, they provide us with the tools with which to navigate.
2: Life challenges. Mm. Yeah, so that, that is, um, this is an important book that—tell uh, me what—you know, you were drawn to theatre. Is there something about the live performance—I mean, I you know you're now doing a lot with, you know, books, but is there something about the live performance that drew you to that form of— um,
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, you know, obviously I had I had exposure to film and my background and, and television as well, but I was strongly drawn to theater because of the live performance aspect. And and what particularly spoke to me, um, there there are several different things I think that make theater so unique and, and so valuable an experience. Um, one is that it is never the same twice. You know, when you when you watch a film, you're seeing the best scene and the best cut and the best, you know, everything, the best, the best, the best that that actor did of the maybe 10 takes of that scene and, and that the director chose and that the editor edited and polished and the the composer scored and all of that is is now in its best form and it's finite. You know, you'll see the same thing whether you see it on Monday or Tuesday or Saturday and no matter who's sitting next to you or whether you see it 10 years from now, it, it remains the same, whereas live theater is very much informed differently every day depending on any number of variables depending on the weather outside depending on whether one of the actors you know has just experienced a challenge at home has you know or whether somebody in the audience has a cold or has you know the, I mean there's just any number of variables that change the energy and the dynamic of a performance from one night yeah. to the next um, and it keeps it very immediate and very alive and, and unreproducible. I mean, even if you record a live theater performance, you're only capturing that one performance that one time. It isn't necessarily reflective of the entire run of the show. Um, so that was always very compelling and intriguing to me that it's like kind of like capturing lightning in a bottle. And, you know, it's it's a very uh, visceral moment that only exists in that particular window of time but the other part that appealed to me so much about live theater is it is a uniquely collaborative medium Um, it is not an auteurs medium so much I mean obviously there are a few exceptions like uh, Peter Brook or uh, you you know Robert Wilson I mean there's certainly auteurs out there but for the most part um, theater is a very collaborative medium that is entirely dependent upon everybody that contributes to it. So, you know, the the, the designers and the, um, not just the actors on the stage and the director, but the playwright and the designers and the costumers and the production stage manager and everybody is contributing their critical piece to make sure mm-hmm. that the entire thing comes together successfully. and. Um, I, to me, that was just a very joyful environment to to be creative in. Um, it takes the pressure off a little bit, you know, and it makes it more of a, a team team sport,
2: so to speak. Well, yeah, it is thrilling, and then the the risk, you know, involved that you know you might forget your lines or you might, you know, these. That's right. Yeah. That's so right. The, and yeah. you see that, so it it's, you, it's just transmitted somehow. It's kind of magic. I'm wondering what we can do to better. Because now we have all these competing mediums, which also thr- 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 things are happening, especially in TV now, uh, is very interesting writing going on there. But how can we better celebrate theater and make it, uh, unfortunately for some people, not with so much like the theater company that you started, Bay Street Theater, which I understand is very much involved in the community, but in s- some theaters it's very like star studded or. Like seen as an elite form, and how can we better, you know, communicate and be more inclusive about that? So some people just don't have theater experiences.
1: It's true, and actually, this is a big focus. This is another reason why we wanted to do Julie's Green Room mm-hmm. on Netflix. Um, sure, to get that. You know, people often, I think, make the mistake of thinking that theater is just Broadway mm-hmm. or just commercial theater. Um, you know, Broadway or the West End in London or, you know, seeing a big, huge, splashy musical on tour with expensive ticket prices and, you know, and sort of speaking to a certain income bracket and and elite. Mm -hmm. But in in actual fact, um, you know, some of the best theater in the world happens in the regions, happens in small theaters like Bay Street or even community theaters, but particularly regional theater, developmental theater. And you know what we wanted to try to achieve with Julie's Green Room is to say, look around you. Chances are, in your neighborhood, there's a a theater company. It may not—they may not have their own physical space. It may be just a a troop of of, you know Mm -hmm. theater people working together and producing where they can, whether it's in a church basement or uh, you know some a loft or whatever it may be. But look around and. Find the theater that is happening near you, and uh, sometimes that's some of the most exciting theater out there, uh, because it's fresh and raw, and it's in development, and uh, it's accessible
2: you yeah. know it's, uh, it's we have portable. to support it yeah we have to support it because I'm wondering you know there. while well, 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 a lot of things are exciting that are happening in television you don't have the kind of language you know it's it's different you know the speech, right. they rely more on image which is compelling but it's you don't you don't get the Tennessee Williams, you know, necessarily. There's a few things. Deadwood was quite interesting in that beautiful language. I, I thought, in my opinion that was a great thing.
1: Definitely, beautiful yeah. language and beautiful imagery in yeah. in you know in the various different screens that we yeah. might engage with. But there's two other things I think, that are really critically important that make theater so so valuable. Mm-hmm. And um, one is that it demands that you as the audience engage with your imagination. So yes. when you're watching a film or when you're watching a television show, you know that has been shot in real places, and uh, you know you're you're basically just sitting back and mm-hmm. and it's being presented to you, and it, you get a lost in in the story, hopefully, and in the imagery. But it's very realistic, and you don't have to do much except receive.
0: In yes. a theater, Please. you have
1: to suspend your disbelief. You mm-hmm. have to go into a theater and say, "I'm willing to believe for the next two hours," you know that this is not a theater and these people are not actors but that, and that that's not a set, that's a real place
2: mm-hmm. and this
1: is something, you know, I'm going to imagine what's on the fourth wall between the set and the audience, you know, and uh, I'm going to engage with my imagination mm-hmm. and participate in this kind of wonderful suspension of disbelief to take a journey, a creative journey. And that is a, a experience that is really unique to theater. Yeah. And in the end, what it does is by sharing that experience with the other audience members around you at that time, it creates a kind of communion experience. And um, mm-hmm. I just by way of example, uh, we, were pre- we were at Bay Street. We were presenting um, a new comedy um, starring Alec Baldwin, actually, but it was mm-hmm. a brand new comedy that no one had ever seen before, and it was due to open um, the first preview, um, uh, September 12th, which was day after
2: 9-11
1: when it actually, you know, actually took place.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, we had to, we had a real dilemma. We didn't know whether, first of all, we didn't know if it was disrespectful to continue to do this, you know, to be performing this sort of seemingly lighthearted comedy in the face of this tremendous national tragedy. Right. And then we also didn't know if anybody would come. You know, people were so completely glued to the news and to their televisions. And, um, you know, it was just an astonishing moment. And in the end, we made the decision um, that not to go forward with the production was, in a sense, to surrender and to let them win, so to speak. And so we decided to proceed, and the theater was packed packed right. to the rafters that night mm-hmm. and after the performance no one wanted to leave the building. They they lingered in the lobby and they wanted to commune and talk and continue laughing.
2: Yeah and it's it, a refuge. It,
1: yeah, it was a refuge and it was an escape and it was an opportunity to commune with one another.
2: Yeah, right, they felt so disconnected, yeah.
1: That's right. And that's I think what theater can do. You know, mm-hmm. you're not you're not in a vacuum you're you're there sharing a common experience with others and being reminded of your common humanity.
2: Well, that's so beautiful, and and also you met your husband through theater, or was it through? How did you? Um, he's um he's a director as well. He he's is. He's an actor and a an director actor. and a producer. Yes. Yeah. And
1: we did meet. Um, we met. Uh, and actually at the time when we were both actors and we were cast in a in a play together many, many years ago in the early 80s, yeah. and uh, in New York City we were both members of a, a developmental theatre group there called the Ensemble Studio Theatre, right. and uh, we were cast in the play together, and um, the rest is history.
2: <laughs> it's one way of finding out whether you can collaborate.
1: That's true, yeah. We've actually always, we've been very fortunate in that we've always worked together, and he yeah. was one of the founders of Bay Street and uh, he now teaches at Stony Brook as well as yeah. I do, and so. Fortunately, we've traveled the same path
2: together yeah I know it's so beautiful I mean I, I've also grew up around artists and just a lot of people don't understand that I don't understand oh you you work with your partner and you live with your partner and you or you this is your mother and you also collaborate on books yes <laughs> but I, I if you can manage it I think it's a really beautiful life it
1: is it is and I I, I can't imagine uh, Doing it any other way, frankly, I'm so dependent upon the the collaboration now mm-hmm. that um, solitary work seems terrifying to me. <laughs> yeah. I really, I really appreciate the creative collaboration.
2: I was wondering, yeah, in terms of advice to your students, advice to your, you know, what you'd like to pass on to your own children. Is there something that you know, as you know, young artists or just as young people?
1: Um, I think the thing that I the thing that I most feel is uh, the importance of just exposing ourselves continuously to art in mm-hmm. whatever way we can, yeah. and whatever way it speaks to us. You know, uh, whether it's whether it's reading, whether it's going to the theater, whether it's listening to music, whether it's going to a gallery and mm-hmm. viewing visual art, whether it's going to the film, or, you know, the movies or it, what, in whatever way speaks to us, really immersing ourselves in the arts as much as we possibly can and experimenting with them ourselves, mm-hmm. because as, I, as we were discussing earlier, you know, not everything will speak to you. You may not be an actor, but you may discover... That you love the visual arts, or you may discover that you love music, or you may discover that you love stage management, or the technical side of things. There's something sure. for everyone. It's all
2: necessary. It's
1: all necessary. So that's that's the key piece, you know. Mm. If you want to be, if you want to write, read, read everything you can, read everything mm. you can get your hands on, and the same is true for every other medium. Um, and then, you know, my mother has always said, and I have to say, I agree with her. Um, and then, of course, the next step is to uh, be ready when the opportunity does come your way.
2: Yeah, By that, you don't realize it. it.
1: Yeah, because yeah. I do. You know, opportunities f- come past us all the time,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: we have to be ready to say yes, and mm-hmm. and and brave enough to say yes. I'll try that. You know, be mm-hmm. ready to to be and even take a risk of failing. You know, right. there really is no failure in the arts. There's only exploration. So, um, so. Don't be afraid. Be ready to say yes and jump in and and, and give it a shot. Wow. You
2: know, that's that's wonderful advice. And and as we're an educational initiative too, we're kind of working at, at parallel activities. Um, I think that that's, those are strong messages. Is it what can we do to better, um, you know, encourage or include creativity and and the arts in our education system? I wonder, you know.
1: Well, the, this is the great challenge, of course, because uh, lately, in recent years, particularly in in, the, in America, um, you know, the arts are the first things to go on the cutting block. Um, with our focus on STEM in recent years, you know, the arts have really uh, taken a hit. And um i i'm beginning to see that shifting now thankfully stem yeah. seems to be turning towards steam now mm-hmm.
2: and yeah I, exactly
1: you know we're definitely seeing that coming back but um depending on certain administrations and you know um controls and things like that the arts get either more or less support and and exposure in the education system i think you know the the important thing is, if, for example, if you don't have a strong arts program in the school where, that you attend or where your children go, there are ways to advocate, and there are ways to bring the arts into the school that don't necessarily have to be you know, uh, created and managed by the school. So
2: um,
1: you can advocate. There's a wonderful um, arts advocacy organization uh, here called Americans for the Arts. Um, And they provide a phenomenal toolkit for advocacy where you can go online and and they'll say, you know, here are the questions to ask your principal or your superintendent and here are the programs that you can suggest and here are the steps you can take. And it's everything from bringing a visiting artist in to speak to the kids uh, to, you know, taking the kids out on a field trip to some place where they can experience the arts to, you know, Canvassing the parent population to see if there's anybody within the school community who can come in and offer a program or right. provide something. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. It doesn't have to be. Well, my school doesn't have an arts program, so I'm just out of luck. You know, if if we as parents and uh, as students advocate for other ways to to bring the arts into our program.
2: No, you're right. We shouldn't be complacent, you know. If it's important to us, ask what we can do, you know. I'm sure there's so many parents out there who have those skills or backgrounds in the arts who can contribute that.
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: Well, thank you so much, Emma Walton Hamilton for everything you're doing uh, on behalf of advocating for the arts, encouraging reading, and you know, inspiring young people for your wonderful work with your mother, Julie Andrews, and, and your wider creative family. It's truly an inspiration. So thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
1: Thank you. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, and, and best of luck with the project.
0: This interview was conducted by Mia Funk, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Dan O'Nissan. Assignment editor is Sorella Lark. Digital media coordinator is Camille Montalino. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas and Adolus and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at